Welcome to Sacred Intersections Podcast, where we navigate the twisty roads of harmful theology, mental health, and religious abuse. I'm Jill. I'm an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA with training in pastoral care and counseling. And I'm Paula. I'm a licensed counselor, a counseling professor, and a person of Christian faith. So as we're getting started, we just wanted to say that Sacred Intersections Podcast is about respectful discussion and conversation to encourage you to think. We're not trying to make you think like us. We just want to make you think. That's our agenda. So neither one of us speaks on behalf of the Presbyterian Church or other organizations which we may be connected to in our professional lives, nor do we speak on behalf of all mental health care professionals and practitioners, people of faith, Jesus followers, white women, Americans, or people who love football. People who love football. So that might be meaningful if you listened last week when Jill was away and my brother filled in and we talked about Jesus and sports and major shout out to big brother Jamie for stepping in, not only in like the other two huge jobs that he has, but also getting ready for Holy Week, which is a big, the whole reason I stepped away. So thank you. Extra special. Thank you, Jamie, for your help. Thank you, Jamie. Yes. Thank you, Jamie. Even though he came in. He came in a lot hotter than I was expecting with the whole sibling rivalry banter. (laughs) I did not expect him to to pick on me from the get-go, but it was fun. It really, it was fun, Jamie. Thank you for joining us. And it was fun to talk about sports. And we know we may have lost some viewers who don't love sports or who are Carolina Tar Heel fans since we (laughs) had some discussion about that. As we leave it at that and move on, we also just want to say Sacred Intersections is a podcast that includes discussion and conversation about religion, spirituality, and mental health, all the ways they intersect, because we were already having these kinds of conversations, so we decided just to record them and share them with all of you, so we're really glad you're here for the journey, even if you're traveling different roads or driving different vehicles than we are. So, Jill, I'm really excited about our episode today going to be a good one. It's going to be a good one. We have a special guest. We're bringing a third voice onto the road trip with us. We are so excited to have Dan Koch with us who hosts the You Have Permission podcast. I'm betting a lot of people listening found us because I've been a guest on that podcast twice. That was my first podcasting experience. So Dan, hi. Welcome, Dan. I just got to say, I'm, I'm pretty excited that the Niners traded for the number three pick in the draft this year. That's a good contribution there. That's my sole football take. <laughs> Which of these star quarterbacks are we going to get? And will it be the Aaron Rodgers, hopefully, you know, the one who pays off for the uh, for the Niners dynasty? Well, time will tell. Only so you're more a Niners guy than a Seahawks guy? Yes. Yeah. California transplant in Seattle have not shed my uh, my Niners or my Giants. Those those have stayed stayed with me. So you probably have some hard living in the fall season sometimes. Uh, it can get a little it can get a little hairy. Maybe the pandemic shielded me from that because you know nobody is no one's uh, talking crap in person. <laughs> you know. We all got oh warriors too. I, I forgot the warriors. Yeah. So I guess if the if the Sonics were to come back, which is all it's like a perennial topic up here, there's always some sort of machinations to get them. Uh, that would be interesting. I would I would probably I would try and divide loyalty there. Ah, 
Yeah. Well, yes. So see, you already fit right in. We're really glad you're here. Yeah. And for those who maybe are wondering why we brought Dan on. So you may have listened to one of the podcasts I did on Dan's You Have Permission podcast, where we talked about the evangelist Ravi Zacharias. Um, we Dan invited me on to be able to look at that kind of through the lens of religious abuse. I did a little mini episode for our podcast, just prepping you that Dan was going to come on and we were going to have a follow-up conversation about that. So, so Dan, I don't know, do you want to do a little summary of kind of, I know that was a long episode, so a summary might not, but kind of what well, we yeah. discussed there and how we got here. Yeah. I won't be able to summarize it, but I will say that what we did was we read through the kind of main document that that um, law firm that that Ravi Zacharias International Ministries commissioned that law firm after his death to sort of like get as many facts as they could. They did not have access to everything, but they still produced a, a really damning report um, that was very honest and clear. We And we read through that entire thing as well as I think one of the larger journalistic pieces on it. It might have been the dispatch. It might have been Christianity Today. I don't remember now which one it was. And so we just said, we're going to look through both of these this this article and this document and we're going to sort of leave to the side crimes uh actual sexual assault and we're just going to focus on the lens of religious abuse and so we went through everything we could find basically that related to either your dissertation or uh the articles that you have published uh with um, dr cashwell and then we went through items on my big survey that was live at the time or had just had just wrapped, uh, which I can't still can't really talk about yet because I have to go through all the isn't that the worst part of academic <laughs> research is the, the waiting. The waiting is the hardest part. Tom Petty was right. Uh, and so but we went through like we didn't talk about results. We just talked about items. Right. So items that made their way onto the survey, which came from the qualitative literature on. On religious and spiritual abuse so that's kind of what we did but we left out a category that we will now remedy today right which is the effect that it has on people that did not know him nor work for him but just followed his work and found him influential in their lives so the the you know it's like a you can imagine it's different like a, a local church pastor has a scandal and spiritually abuses some people uh, they all know him probably in that case, but a mega church pastor does. Now we're starting to get into something closer to the Ravi territory. He's like a celebrity. And so you have this larger fallout that is, goes beyond, you know, his personal relationships. Yeah. Can I just jump in real quick on the highly unlikely, but possible chance that this is the very first time that anyone is listening to sacred intersections podcast. Dan, will you just give us like a quick minute of who you are? Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I'm, I'm a doctoral psychology, counseling psychology student. Uh, my own dissertation is on religious abuse and Paula is on my dissertation committee, which she was very happy to offer to do. And so I am constantly bugging her about sort of <laughs> ideas and questions around that. Um, and I'm a podcaster. I host the You Have Permission podcast, 37 years old. I played in a band for 10 years called Sherwood, which led to my current day job, which is writing commercial music until I can start being a psychologist. And then that will be my day job. And uh, and I'm a progressive Christian. 
So I'm, I'm quite theologically progressive and I am center left sociopolitically and very interested in the kind of bridge building reduction of polarization. Uh, I'm interested in, I'm interested in the psychological aspects of sociopolitics where we're talking about how are people actually persuaded? How do we actually get people to change their minds on an issue such that they might vote or shift voting loyalty or pressure their congressperson or whatever? But let's not we're not let's not get into politics today. Yeah. So if if you happen to not know who Dan Koch is, if you haven't heard us talk about him on our podcast or heard his podcast, yes, the way that we met was Dan had found my research and there's nothing better for a former doctoral student to hear than someone has actually read your dissertation and wants to talk about it. That very rarely happens. So what Dan was talking about, just I was on his podcast. And if for some reason you don't know who Ravi Zacharias is and the scandal that Dan was alluding to, he's a very well-known evangelist who died last year. And after his death, a lot of information came out about sexual abuse within his ministries. And so we really encourage you to go back and listen to the episode of You Have Permission. Which episode, do you know what episode number that was, Dan? Uh, it's around 107-ish, 108, 110, somewhere it was, around there. It was a few weeks ago. It's, it's not yeah. very far back there. It's not too far back. And so what we, as Dan mentioned, what we realized is that we spent a lot of time in that conversation talking about the actual women who were the 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 victims, what we would call, of his abuse, um, and the organization, but we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the followers and people who really just had put him up on a pedestal or who just really liked him a lot. And I know I got some feedback from people about that episode. I think you got some feedback, Dan, about people who just had been impacted. So that's what we decided to come in and have a follow-up discussion specifically about how pastors can impact their followers. Yeah. So specifically, I have been uh, had a pretty long conversation with one friend. I'm just not going to name him. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I'm not going to like give him a pseudonym. I'll just I just won't say his name. Um, but he reached out to me and I think uh, if I'm recalling correctly, he said, uh, I finally listened to one of your episodes. So as we said, this was like 110 or so. Uh, and he was like, and then he put in parentheses, I was a big Ravi fan. Mm -hmm. And so we, we started chatting about it. Um, and he just said, I, he's like, I was a huge fan. He and Francis Chan were my top two. Um, he said, I think I'm still in denial a little bit. And uh, it was it was clear that he was really going through going through a rough time. Um, and he shared a, a story of uh, someone in his life that had also had the person that led them to Christ uh, molested his friend's adopted daughter mm. and kind of blew up that person's world. So my friend was making the connection there between the Ravi thing and this other thing which is interesting because that is sort of the thing we're talking about is like his, my friend's story of his, of his close friend was more what we did in our episode. And then his relation to public figure Ravi Zacharias is what we want to talk about in this episode. And he made that connection immediately uh, in his own mind when he was talking with me about it. So you got a really personal feedback from yeah. what we had discussed. And yeah. And I don't, I would say like most of my friends and, 
and even acquaintances are not sort of Ravi Zacharias heads. You know, he he was an evangelist and an apologist. And, you know, that's a like my friend uh, who liked him. We, we do not see eye to eye on a lot of things theologically. We are both Christians uh, and we're we're quite different on that on the on the details, mm-hmm. uh, even though we are friends and enjoy each other's company a lot. So it's that that's just to say I if I think I think if I were in more conservative circles still, I would have heard from a lot more people. Uh, but because of that, I just don't not a ton of my own friends, are, you know, read or listen to apologetics, frankly, you know. Yeah. And I would say the same for me. And yet there's still enough in my world that I heard mainly just echoes of what you said, just a lot of how disappointed they were, how devastated they were to have heard that. And so, you know, as we jump into our categories, Jill, kind of, I want you to be able to jump in here too from, do we want, you want to start with the religion road and, and what it's like to be a pastor and feel the pressure of people putting their spiritual life in your hands? I mean, I'm, yes. So I think it's interesting um, hearing y'all talk about sort of the difference between the t- these two episodes. I think we would say that perhaps this intersection, this particular sacred intersection is the intersection of um, people's relationships with their religious leaders. I think it varies. And my experience, I went to a, sen- a seminary run by a mainline denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA. And there's a lot of standards and for all of the ways that hierarchy is sometimes a pain in the patoot, uh, it also provides like continuity of structure. So um, you have the, the same standards. Like if someone is a pastor in a Presbyterian church, USA church, I would say probably nine times out of 10, they have a master of divinity and have, have gone to that higher schooling and, and doing things. And so, so that's my experience. And I did have training in my graduate education about uh, the power of the pulpit. And that was sort of used loosely, like both the power of the pulpit in a very um, actuarial sense, like what you say when you're preaching and things and the power of the pulpit, the power of your role as a pastor um, or as a, as a preacher and things like that. So like was mentioned earlier, uh, it's going to be different if there's a uh, local pastor with a congregation of, you know, hundred or a few hundred people with whom that pastor has probably pretty intimate relationships with, and there's a scandal is going to be very different than a mega church pastor who may also be a televangelist who, you know, may not know every one of their parishioners personally, or right. even call them parishioners. Um, so, so there is like a lot of, a lot of power there, but I think when we're on the religion road, we got to ask questions like as basic as who are we, who do we say speaks for God? Can I jump yeah. in though and say, it's so interesting that, uh, and you know, as someone who's in school right now and Paula is training counselors all the time, uh, who are in a similar program as what I'm in, we also learn a ton about the power that a therapist has yeah. with a client, not only, uh, and, and they even hammer this more in a doctoral program because there's this extra layer socially that is assumed of you uh, and you have access to more and more resources and you kind of have keys that can unlock certain doors for people. That's all in addition to the fact that you are with them for their tenderest moments, their their greatest pain, uh, you know, that you you know the the stuff they'll only tell you 
you know, mm-hmm. you know, their secrets. Yeah. Of course you keep that confidential. Yeah. Um, but it's, it is, it, it's interesting to contrast that with the model that Ravi's ministry was based on, yes. which is basically the parachurch celebrity model. So it's like even less denominational oversight than Baptists have. Right. <laughs> it's basically is minimal. It's basically you don't. You you started a company and you're the CEO and you are in charge. There yeah. are there is whatever oversight you want to have. And if you want none, then there's none. Yeah. You know, and so contrasting that with these other sort of institutions that build in this kind of ethical sense of understanding your power and your influence, I think is really illustrative. Yeah. And I think that that we will come back, I imagine, a number of times to that analogy of corporate COO and capitalist evangelism sort of idea. But yeah, they're standards. And I think standards are different in lots of ways. But uh, in general, and I don't have an objective viewpoint on this, it's nice to know that leaders are being held to a standard and have to go through a sense of training and that there's an understanding of their, even even if it's a minimal amount of training, that there's some sort of mention of power and whether, whether we're doing the whole with great power comes great responsibility or just understanding that what you say makes a difference. And that sometimes people might not hear me say something as a white woman or someone who loves football. They might hear me say something as this is me saying I'm speaking for God. Um, And I think that's a nuanced thing that not every religious leader is always able to do. Yeah, that's, we say on this podcast all the time, when you are, when you can be in the position of speaking for God, recognizing how much power that gives you. And when you say God is on your side, how much, how dangerous that can be, but also how powerful that can be. And as I was listening to you, Jill, I thought of just the difference between a a relationship with a pastor like you of a relatively small congregation where you do know every face, you know, every name, you know, details of, I imagine everyone who attends our church regularly, details of our lives and versus someone like Ravi, who it does have that celebrity and it's a really different relationship, but that almost becomes a relationship we form in our mind with him that, that, it's just so easy to feel like we're in a relationship with a celebrity and that we know everything about a celebrity and to kind of create a a relationship out of when we only see the shiny stuff. (laughs) So we have this relationship with the shiny stuff and the disappointment that can come from an intimate relationship like you might have with your congregation versus a disappointment with someone that we feel like we know, but really don't know. Right. And I think so much of that has to do with understanding our roles, which we've talked about before, but there's there's an understanding, uh, like with, with mental health professionals, there's gotta be an understanding of what role you're playing at what point in time. Like when you're grocery shopping in the grocery store, you are not also acting as a mental health professional. When I am grocery shopping in the grocery store, every once in a while, I actually need to put on my pastor hat because I run into someone who's falling apart and needs that sort of thing. And it's, um, there are ways in which there are times sometimes when I am jealous of mental health professionals to be like, nope, like the little sign that Lucy from the peanuts hangs on her little <laughs> therapy fit, the, the doctor is out. That's harder, I think, to do with certain professions. I like, so I imagine with social workers, a similar thing. 
social worker that's, you know, running around doing different things can't always just say, um, oh, I'm not wearing my social worker hat right now. I'm just trying to buy apples at the grocery store. But, um, but that's why I think that it's so interesting to have that, that institutional, sorry, important, not interesting. It's so important to have that institutional training around the power that you will inevitably have in your role because we don't we can't control how people perceive us preach at what times of the week or day and in what context so at least you give a kind of a buffer there by training people like you do have this power it is there you have to be careful with it um and so then that gives uh it makes it less likely that in a situation where you're caught off guard and not realizing that someone is investing more power in you than they ought to maybe or something like at least you've got some basics there some language for thinking about oh that's what's going on right now ah, i see i can either try and de-escalate that power or i can just respond appropriately given that they're treating me this way uh, but if you don't have that training, then you don't have that buffer. Yeah. Well, it is, um, you know, the grass is always greener. So there are times when uh, the rules are prioritized over people sure. may not happen as much in a non-denominational church or a church right. that is not as structured, but a church that is not structured as not as strongly structured or doesn't have that oversight um, that's when the sort of power and control um, can can be misread or misunderstood. I would imagine that it is similar like this for uh, for counselors and for particularly Paula and the folks that when you encounter as counseling students. But when I was in seminary, we regularly referred to ourselves as the island of misfit toys for so many reasons, because there were some of us who uh, had just had had not had any real world experience had gone from high school to college to graduate school. Uh, there were some of us this is the particular path I chose where I took some time off between uh, under my undergraduate degree and my graduate degree. And then there are some folks who are well into their quarter or midlife later life choices that are going back and doing things. And the idea that they are coming to seminary because the church is somewhere where they've always felt loved and accepted. And surely that is where they should be because they want to spend their time where they're loved and accepted. So for a pastor that maybe they felt loved and needed and accepted in the church, and that's where they want to be, or for a counseling student, it may be that they felt seen and could be their authentic selves in the presence of a counselor and wanted to be able to do that for someone else, which is a beautiful intention, but being able to recognize that. Yeah, there's a joke. I'm sure Paula has heard this, that, you know, a lot of like some students, some people will get a master's or a doctorate in psychology instead of going to therapy themselves. Like <laughs> they will go through all of that instead of just what they really needed was just to do therapy. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I won't speak for anybody in my cohort. I, I don't <laughs> I don't have anybody in mind that I think that applies to, but I've heard multiple people who have been to school for for psychology make that do that bit basically yeah i often tell our students you know a master's in counseling is basically two to three years of of therapy it's just done in a little different format because it's basically a lot of self-exploration and as i hear those thoughts i kind of think that 
my mind's going two different directions about because we had originally thought we would focus on the people, the followers and how they're impacted. But I think we're also talking about how important it is for pastors to really understand that pedestal that they may be on and how to navigate that regularly as opposed to just when they fall off. <laughs> right. Everyone's... Yeah. Maintenance. Right. Self-awareness is a gift to be used at all times. Yeah. So if we jump down to the U-turn category, we, we tend to jump all over our categories, Dan, That's just great. so you know. We tend to That's die. fine. We're not great with that. But, you know, this uh, celebrities it tend to, or I would, I've never been a celebrity, so I don't know, but I imagine celebrities tend to surround themselves with yes people, you know, people who are all, who are not challenging them and who are not holding them accountable for much. And then. And this certainly seemed true of Ravi from the extensive reporting you know one one of the victims we talked about was this guy who ended up being like this financier who just really wanted to be around ravi and never criticized him and paid for you know one of the spas that he opened and and really appeared to just give him zero pushback and that seemed to fit into a pattern of the type of people that he liked to have around him I also think of, uh, always end up thinking about Mark Driscoll just being up here in Seattle and how he managed to get the the bylaws of, of Mars Hill Church changed from where the elder board had power over him. They could hire or fire him as in a Presbyterian type polity. He got it changed to just the executive board of directors, which was him and and these two guys that were on board with him. And then basically the three of them had full power over everything. And uh, they appear to have been yes men because neither of them challenged him all the way up through the implosion of the church. So that does seem to be a pattern. Yeah. Yeah. And we saw how Ravi basically shunned the one person who was trying to help him and and told him accountable and didn't even realize what was happening, but just said, this doesn't look good. You need to be aware of what this looks like. And this guy was sent to the organizational Siberia, I think is what they said. Right. So, you know, we've used the word power a lot. So it's interesting to think about the difference between someone who starts out with this very earnest and sincere motivation and then gets a taste of that power and gets drunk with that power, as opposed to someone who's intentionally seeking this power and recognize that power from the beginning. And, And both are harmful. But I think that's part of what we would encourage for a U-turn for any ministers who were listening would be to constantly be open to feedback and to ask ask for the experiences of the people who are following you, but also who are intentionally stepping down off the pedestal on a regular basis. Because when the pedestal becomes the idol, then that certainly takes away from any of the word that they're preaching. Well, and if we want to talk a little bit about the the followers um, and the, the ways in which people flock to these dynamic leaders, I think an important question to ask is how we identify an organization. Is Are we identifying an organization by their leader or are we identifying an organization by the product that they put out or by the work that they do? So I think there are examples across all kinds of belief levels and denominations and things like that of, you know, people will decide, oh, I don't really like the pastor, so I'm not going to go to that church. One of the most powerful experiences I had um, in in training was coming across a, a fairly 
large mainline denominational church. So we're not talking a mega church, but um, a larger church for a mainline denomination. And this one particular woman did not particularly care for the pat, like didn't love the pastor, didn't agree with the, the, the way the pastor stood and said, this is my church. I'm not leaving just because I don't like the pastor. I will stay longer than he can. I mean, like she, it was sort of a, a stance, but the ways in which it's hard with a celebrity like a Ravi or a Jim Baker or others who are the organization of a, a Franklin Graham, right. they are the organization and their identity is the organization's identity. Whereas there are organizations out there where it's the organizational identity. So when a leader is faulted or canceled or however we want to say it, how are folks responding to that? Is it, we have to throw this all out because the leader is at fault. And so the whole organization is at fault or can we salvage what was made without the, yeah. this particular leader? That's actually a really good point in a lot of ways, Jill, because I think, I think what we're talking about is the followers relationship in multiple ways, the followers relationship with the leader, with their own faith, with God, with the system that they're a part of, and how much of that gets conflated, how much of that is able to be pulled apart. You know, when we've, when Dan and I have talked about my dissertation research, that, that, that betrayal that often happens when experiences of religious abuse, it can be amplified if they're not able to pull apart that experience from God. And, you know, you use the example of Franklin Graham. I think that's, for me personally, a really interesting example because we happen, I don't know if you know this, Dan, but we happen to be very near the area where Franklin Graham's ministry is about an hour from mm. the little town where we live. And I have a lot of a lot of issues with a lot of things that Franklin Graham does and stands for. And yet... A few months ago, in the height of COVID, so his ministry came and set up a, a mobile hospital and served all the counties around us. And really, and and just, and I remember thinking like, oh, I wish it were someone else, but that's awesome. And I yeah. was able to pull that apart pretty simply of this is a beautiful thing and I'm so thankful for it. And I, if thankfully I did not have to use that hospital, but I sure was glad it was there. There's also the question of like, how much of the day-to-day -day of Samaritan's Purse Franklin Graham runs and how much time he has between um, Fox News appearances and <laughs> incendiary Facebook posting. Right. Which is a kind of a dark way of putting it, I guess. But, <laughs> I mean, Samaritan's Purse is like, uh, surely has scores of super capable, you know, executives and program directors. And I mean, they just, they're a massive aid organization right so they're going to have he yeah he presides over an organization that undoubtedly has a lot of talent at it of people of serious goodwill um and you know his whatever you want to call missteps or whatever we consider to be his uh you know uh, idolatries or whatever are not necessarily impacting you know many or most aspects of samaritan's purse so it's to me it's interesting then how we how we pull those apart. So I got some interesting feedback as well from, from different folks and um, roadies. I don't know if I've shared a lot about this. I have um, spent a lot of time in the Pentecostal faith and in the evangelical faith prior to going to graduate school and spending time in seminary in the PCUSA. And so 
have a lot of those conversations, um, which sometimes feels like in another world. But it was really fascinating for me to get some feedback about y'all's episode about Ravi and had a particular conversation where I mentioned to someone that the three of us were going to be having this follow-up and they said, um, I love Ravi Zacharias. And I was like, oh, well, have you, have you heard about this stuff about him? And they were like, oh yeah, it was really sad when he died in January. And I was like, well, yeah, pretty sure he like raped some people and did some other pretty terrible things too. And this person said, oh, well, did they get canceled? Because I just don't pay attention to that. I just feel like if the Holy Spirit is going to speak through somebody, the Holy Spirit's going to speak through somebody. And, you know, God sees all of our sin the same. So none of us are perfect. So if the Holy Spirit's going to speak through this person, then we should listen. And I will admit, I had a very visceral reaction to that. Um, As I would have, yes. But then I sat back and think, thought about it. And I was like, well, I sure hope that my congregation doesn't think that I am without sin because that's going to be disappointing for them when they figure that out. Right. Uh, so, you know, how do we separate the Samaritan's Purse Field Hospital from the way we feel about Franklin Graham? How do we feel, uh, you know, how do we separate good things that the Ravi Zacharias Ministries did from the horrible things that Ravi did himself? Well, and with him, it's it's actually even, I think there's an additional layer because as an apologist, he's putting forth and and he's kind of, I'll, I'll, most of these arguments he did not come up with, but it's basically his job to present rational arguments for Christian faith mm-hmm. and for theism. And so there is the additional question of like, uh, should we look on those arguments any differently? Ravi's not the only one who makes them. Plenty of other people make them. Um, so, so how do you think about like what this says about apologetics as a field or what it says about the type of people who find these plausible? I'm not even sure that that category fits for Ravi. We actually don't know what he found plausible. It's, it's quite likely that he didn't believe any of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's, that is at least a live option starting some number of years ago, some indeterminate point when he figured out that he could be a millionaire and pay for, you know, uh, poor Southeast Asian sex slaves with this money. Mm-hmm. I mean, who knows what he believed? Uh, obviously, there was some self-deception going on based on the things that he said to his victims, according to the report. So he was probably not fully aware of all that. But like, William Lane Craig makes similar arguments that Ravi made. So should we think any differently about William Lane Craig? Probably not. Right. So it's, it is very, it gets very complex. There's all these different layers. And that's one of the things that my buddy was, was talking with me about was like, what do I do with all these arguments that he made that I found and find quite compelling, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would say actually, as I hear you tell that story, Jill, that that sounds like a pretty healthy relationship to me that that person was able to immediately pull apart what they believed and what Ravi was saying versus their whole worldview falling like tumbling down because this person because they hear this horrible thing about this person yeah and and you know and go ahead what were you going to say I like um, I believe y'all mentioned and talked a little bit about on your episode um, the toxic 
allegiance. Is that maybe toxic loyalty? Yeah, toxic loyalty, and the ways in which it became a an issue for those who just, um, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not even gonna consider that there's the possibility that this is wrong. Which, okay, follow me through this because it's initially gonna sound bad. I'm not sure that the people who are who are religious leaders can be blamed entirely for toxic loyalty. Like there's oh, gotta sure. be some, like there's, there's awareness of that and the way that religious leaders understand their power or not just religious leaders, any leaders. At some point in time, the followers themselves need to take responsibility for that toxic loyalty and the ways in which they will follow at any cost, listen at any cost, believe at any cost, an important consideration, I think. It strikes me though, that maybe what we're looking for here is more of a Aristotelian golden mean in between two poles, as opposed to a, you know, virtue vice on a light switch kind of a thing, right? So uh, the person that you talked to, Jill, I would say um, on the one hand, I would agree with Paula and I'm not a therapist, so she's got a better, you know, you, Paula, you have a better insight here than me, but that there is a kind of um, what, maybe spiritual bypassing going on as well. So there's a part of it that's healthy. That's like, yeah, what Ravi Zacharias did with his masseuse should not send your life into a tailspin. Sure. That's a good, healthy distance. At the same time, we don't want to have no discernment about when she says, I, I assume that this was a woman. I, that's probably a sexist thing of me. The Holy Spirit can speak through anyone when, when he or she said that, right? Uh, they, they might mean that basically, well, anytime I hear something I agree with, I know that the Holy Spirit is speaking through them, right? And so that would be not enough discernment that like we do need to look at the fruits. And so, so um, to the extent that Ravi or anybody else is sort of like uh, grooming this image of themselves as I'm your champion, I'm your warrior, I'm the one, I'm in between you and the danger, uh, I have the truth and the world out there is scary. Well, that's where we should, we actually should be quite worried about that person and, and what they're saying. And we probably should should heavily doubt that the Holy Spirit is speaking through them because the Holy Spirit is not interested in making a handful of heroes and villains here or there to enjoy their, you know, celebrity status. Most definitely. Most yeah. definitely. I I would agree with that a hundred percent that that I the healthy part of being able to separate the message from the messenger so easily and willingly, but also yes, always using caution. I think that was an appropriate possible use of spiritual bypass. You know, if it's someone saying it doesn't matter, well, that's not okay because it it very much what he did does matter very much, and that has to be wrestled with. And that has to be pulled apart from the message. And I think that's maybe the overall question of the podcast is, can we separate the message from the messenger mm. and say what the messenger did is not okay. And we can't just write it off. Um, but what does that do to the message? Well, Paula, you mentioned uh, before we started about how I have, you know, experience within evangelicalism. And this is the kind of thing you, that's touching on something that comes up now pretty constantly, which is, okay, you've got 
not just a handful of people, but basically a critical mass of evangelical support in both leadership and at the lay level for Donald Trump, for instance. And uh, that's all I'm going to say politically. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm not going to break my own rule. Uh, and then people will ask me, they will say, well, okay, so that's 80% or whatever. But what 80% does has no, has no effect on the truth of the gospel. So we, it should not affect basically our faith to see that 80% have done X or Y or whatever. Um, and I understand that perspective. Um, it is it is sort of axiomatically true. It's necessarily true that what a few million people do does not affect the truth status of various claims. That's true. But we live in a messy world where we have to use discernment. Mm -hmm. And so if the proof of the pudding or the if the pudding is sour, then we might have something to say about the pudding recipe. Like we don't, we don't want to say nothing about, we don't want to weight that as a zero. Maybe we don't want to weight it at a hundred, but we want to weight it somewhere around 50, you know, or 30. I don't know what the number is, uh, but it, this comes up a ton of like, yeah, people are leaving the evangelical church because the, the pudding is sour Yeah, and look what it has led to. And now millions of people are doing the the very difficult and time consuming work of connecting a lot of those dots okay like oh here's the christian zionism that was really big in my congregation and then oh i read this thing about sort of the history of white supremacy in the in the states and that's connecting to this thing that i used to hear at my bible study and that's connecting to my aunt's facebook post where she said this and that's related to you know, uh, this like Reagan era economic triumphalism, you know, so there's all these threads. I mean, there's innumerable threads. But what I worry about if we if we follow the the road, the road that uh, Jill, your friend was following of like, well, I'll just ignore I'll just block all that stuff out. Well, then what we end up what we will end up with is just a bunch more instances of Ravi, which will then contribute to the, the the meta the the large scale decline of the faith and the more of these dominoes fall the more people will go yeah the pudding's sour clearly so i guess i'm out and if we think that christianity is true in some sense then we ought to want that to not happen we want people to see that the pudding is sweet and that it well, pudding is not very uh, f uh, nutrient nutritious. I was going to say that the pudding is nutritious, <laughs> but that would be a bad pudding. So the pudding is rich and and sweet and draws us into enjoyment, right? Well, and it's the the ways in which evangelism, and I, I want to differentiate between the what many call evangelical faith, which I yeah. think has a sociopolitical understanding about it as well, but the, the act of evangelism, of spreading the good news of God, and the ways in which different people follow like the great commission that Jesus gives to go out into all the world and make disciples. So how is that a little bit like a corporation? How is that... Uh, capitalized to to make sure that the end justifies the means. 
so that for an American capitalist corporation uh, like Amazon, the goal, the end is making dollars, making making money. And so the means are, you know, having not awesome working conditions and unfair labor practices and anti-union all kinds of things. Whatever they can get away with until they can't get away with it anymore. And then they'll do the next minimum. And that's just basically, and we ought to expect that every corporation will probably act that way. And so we just need really good laws that keep them right. Cause they'll just, they will, they will operate as product profit motive. Right. Yeah. Well, and if the end justifies the means there's ways in which particularly in America, the, the people who have mastered that, your your Jeff Bezos for if we're going to follow the Amazon example, is not, is held to a different set of standards. So what he does with his personal life or the poor labor practices that his company, uh, they don't matter because dude has a spaceship and uh, can do anything and has all of the money. So if we transfer that to evangelism and hear that as the practice of evangelism, if the end is saving souls and the end justifies the means, then it doesn't matter how many massage, creepy massage parlors there are because souls have been saved. And that is problematic. I would um, hear me as a religious leader would like to say that that is a problematic way of looking at the gospel. It also ends up failing. And Paul, I'll, I'll stop talking for a second because it, they weren't able to cover it up. Like, I don't know. We talked about this, Paula. What was he thinking? Like, was he senile? Because why would not he have just gotten ahead of this? Like, he left photos on his phone. It's not like the evidence was there. He was dying of cancer. He didn't get hit by a car. He didn't have a massive stroke. So it's like in the end, yeah, souls were saved. I'm air quoting here. Because first of all, I I don't know, we have various ways of thinking about that. But now how many will be lost or not saved because of the massive size of this scandal proportionate to the number of souls he saved, right? So it's even on that logic, it doesn't work, not to mention it's bad logic. Oh, yeah, it's horrible theology. Please don't hear me promoting that kind of theology. I think, you know, what was coming up for me was just that that's the theological all or nothing thinking. And that's, that was on my mental health road notes too, of just how all or nothing thinking is almost always dangerous and damaging. And so, so I do think, I mean, we keep talking about the nuance of this, that it doesn't have to be an either or it it doesn't have. And, but for the followers, when I think about the mental health issues that come up from people who were followers of him or followers of other religious leaders who have been engaged in some kind of scandal. When it's that all or nothing thinking is there when their loyalty is completely to this person rather than the message. So that's why I keep talking about pulling apart the message and the messenger. But when the faith is completely tied to that and you pull out this one block and it all comes tumbling down, that all or nothing thinking of the person too, that the person's either good or bad. And, and so, you know, even in the two episodes we've done now, Dan, talking about Robbie, we've, we've not focused on any of the good things that came out of that ministry. And I don't know a lot about them, but I imagine they were there. And, and I find myself kind of throwing those out (laughs) because of this one thing I know about him now. And I think that's fair because 
people in power who use that power to abuse should be removed from that power and any power they had should be removed from it. But I just know when we think about the mental health issues of the followers to the grief that people are experiencing, they're grieving this man they thought they knew, they're grieving this faith they thought they had, which suddenly is not there. And as counselors, thinking about what that means for helping them work through this and for pastors thinking about that. Yeah. Um, I've got an angle that uh, you guys might find interesting and we could chat about. So you mentioned all or nothing thinking, you know, in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, Paula, as you know, this is one of, if not the, it's usually the number one cognitive distortion on the list. Mm -hmm. So cognitive behavioral therapy works to get rid of or minimize all these natural cognitive distortions that human beings have and all or nothing black and white, sometimes called, usually tops that list. This is one of the most common things we do. What is interesting, I think, in this case is that the co they're called cognitive distortions because they are actually inaccurate. So it is not that, well, we, it's not the case that we rightly see that the world is black and white and that mm -hmm. that causes us distress. So we should convince ourselves that the world has shades of gray. It's that the world has shades of gray. And when we convince ourselves that it's black and white, we have distress because we are out of touch with reality. And so I wonder you know, there's a, there's not a straight one-to-one -one here because I can't speak with as much certainty about the theological state of things. Perhaps uh, the Baptists are right that it really is a light switch and people are either saved or they're not. I don't think that that's true. Uh, I don't think that it's uh, the kind of thing you can draw a straight line as to who's in and who's out, who's a sheep and who's a goat. Um, but a lot of assumptions get made when you do have these kinds of theological systems and these kinds of ministerial systems where the ends do justify the means is because we are assuming a high level of confidence that that is the case that well maybe it's levels of gray on earth but in heaven and hell it's completely binary and we have a really clear grasp of who's in and who's out is that a cognitive distortion of a, of a type. Obviously it's not the mm -hmm. same type. You wouldn't treat that with CBT, but is there a, is there a connection there sort of thematically? Well, and that's what led to, I, as we discussed, I think on your podcast, so many people covering up for this because they didn't want right. that opposite to happen for, for it to go completely to the other side and what would be right lost there. And they really justified not calling it out, which says to me, they didn't trust the message to hold up past the messenger. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It, it's also, it, we also might say if, if that was a really animating principle or anchoring principle behind the cover up, behind the various people who were like, eh, let's not look too close because it could jeopardize all these souls. Well, then we might say that the proof in the pudding of that assumption, that theological assumption is sour, that sour fruit. And so that's a reason, like we might, we might expect, I would say we should, I think we should expect that if God, the God, the loving God of the universe has actually set things up to be a complete, an obvious binary between in and out heaven and hell, then I would expect that following 
that theological principle would lead to human flourishing and not to rotten and sour fruit. And so that might be one way of looking at that from a theological lens. Yeah. And, and that was certainly not, I think, everyone's motivation in the cover up. But I think that sure. was that was at least what some of them said. Jill, are you over there ruminating? Do you want to? I, no, I, I just think theologically, um, you know, here's here's my proof texting moment. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. So you can make the Bible have layers of gray. And from my theological perspective, there is not a binary in, in scripture. Scripture itself questions itself and challenges itself and even contradicts itself in places. And so if we hold scripture up as the ruler of truth we can't even we can't even follow that standard of its binary because scripture is not a binary there there is not this um you know corrugated thinking in in scripture so theologically there is that gray area and layers and there's all sorts of things that go into that but you also have people who are going to get scripture to say whatever they want scripture to say and sometimes that's reading John 3.16 without paying attention to John 3.17. Or sometimes that's reading the Great Commission and not reading the rest of the story in the Gospels about what Jesus does and um, things yeah. like that. So. You know what it makes me think of? And I don't know, you know, when Rob Bell came out with Love Wins, um, I actually read that book around that time. And, you know, he he sort of argues for universal salvation in that book, but he doesn't really argue for that. What he actually does in the book, and again, I don't know if people read the book, but what he actually does in the book is he problematizes the binary either or salvation narrative. So a lot of that book, which is quite short, is just him quoting Jesus and various passages in the gospel that seem to give multiple mechanisms for salvation. Mm -hmm. So he will emphasize, for instance, times when an entire household is said to be saved by Jesus because one person in the household had faith in Christ. And he goes, how does this fit in with the system that we have said? Uh, how is it that a bunch of people's family members can get in like on their coattails or whatever? That seems not true. Um, something that I don't know if he brings up in Love Wins, but that uh, the grandfather of liberal theology, Friedrich Schleiermacher, said around the turn of the 19th century, I got a big smile from Jill. Uh, is, yeah. Is First that like theologian ever who knew who he was. You get Oh, good. Yeah. I'm a little amateur theologian, so I don't, you know, however you want to place me. Uh, but he said, isn't it weird? that Jesus is telling people they're saved and forgiving their sins before he ever dies and rises again. What's mm. going on there? What I'm, what I'm getting at is that these are all instances in the text that are problems for this uh, sort of ironclad system of, well, we know how people get saved. It's the only way they get saved. And therefore, everything we do should be about getting people to make a decision for Christ down the Romans road, because that's the way people get saved. Capital T W P G S, right? Yeah. The way people get saved. And yeah. then all these stubborn counterexamples in the text, uh, those push back against that black and white. Uh, maybe black and white thinking is the wrong term at this point for what I'm describing, but that kind of ironclad uh, 
proof texted system. Yeah. It's so interesting that you bring up Rob Bell. So Paula, Rob Bell is someone who I always think of when you talk about your category in, from your dissertation about the ways in which the community uh, makes a decision. So if we're talking about the evangelical community as a whole, Rob Bell and particularly Rob Bell bringing Love Wins into the mix got him expelled from that community. Yeah. And there's very much in my experience, the belief of now that Rob Bell has put this piece out, there were people in the evangelical community saying, don't listen to him or anything that he's ever said. So it's this very interesting way that the community said, okay, he said this one thing wrong, which was a scandal in some senses. And then the evangelical community said, we need to discredit him and everything that he's ever said, which before Love Wins, Rob Bell was like the Prince Charming of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the evangelical mecca that it is. So that all or nothing response to him, you know, it makes me think of Beth Moore now, who I actually really adore in a lot of ways. And, you know, and she left not because of a scandal, but she left because she was calling out abuse. She was calling out abusive behavior. And so I think that's a different slant on this. Now those who are condemning her or mad at her for leaving, do they now wipe away all of the teaching that she has done and all of the ways they have had faith development through her works and teaching? And so it's an interesting it's an interesting take on cancel culture. You know, we did a whole episode on that, but it's an interesting take on on how, again, how much we connect that message to the messenger. And that can be done in positive and negative ways. This episode has gone places I did not expect it to go. I will be perfectly honest. The Baptist <laughs> in me is a little uncomfortable with some of these conversations. But been- when you say the former Baptist, I also that also brings me back to some of these conversations around like what kind of um, mechanisms are in place to prevent this type of stuff, right? And how Ravi is almost like a uh, hyper-Baptist, you know, a hyper-independent island unto himself, the way he's running his organization before he passes, right? And, And that I was thinking about kind of like a capitalist analogy for this. You Baptist and non-denominational, so not Southern Baptist has some some accountability because they are accountable to the larger convention, right? There are the the convention has some authority. I I suppose people can leave it, but there's some structure. But like an independent non-denominational Baptist church, right, is like the ultimate example of complete autonomy. That's like an unregulated capitalist economy. So that's like America. Um, in, in during the industrial revolution or like the, you know, the, the oil baron years. Um, and then, or it's like Monte Carlo or something now like a tax shelter. And then like the mainline denominations are like, you know, welfare states, like the Northern European countries. So you can still have some corporations flourish. You, you get your Ikea's and your Volvo and your VW and stuff, but you do tend to have more of these massive, world-changing companies come from a less regulated environment like the United States. That's where you get all the tech boom, you know, you get all the computer companies, all the like everything now is is building on what they did here. And that seems to me to kind of be the trade-off. 
in rough terms is we can use the the lack of structure and we can find these these like celebrities in waiting and they will get more popular if there are fewer structures around them and if we think that that means that the gospel is being preached and that god's work is being done then we're going to be very hesitant to want to put any kind of structures around them because we're slowing down the progress or whatever and then with our volvos and our Schwab or whatever, uh, Sobs and our Ikea, well, they might need to grow more slowly and they're gonna, it's gonna be harder for them to kind of poke their head above the cloud cover and dominate, dominate with the gospel. I don't, I'm, some of this is breaking down, uh, <laughs> you know, and, but like, but we know that there are going to be more structures in place if things go poorly and perhaps they'll be less tied to a charismatic leader or or something like that. There are these kind of two modes of doing things and they have their own perks and then they have their own drawbacks. And in our field, Paula, I should say your field that I'm you, trying you to join. Say our, you're officially in. I'm officially in. Okay. <laughs> I the, the podcast is giving me like an honorary doctorate. Um, <laughs> so in our field, it's like we're hyper attuned to the costs of the unlimited growth low taxes model uh that's what we're that's our job is to basically study what happens when those things go wrong um but the people from that world would point to the perks of that model as worth it so literally the ends justify the means the ends of more souls saved justify the bad apples which are, they would say few and who knows how many they really are, but the bad apples will hurt more people. That's true. But the broader thing is all these natural charismatic evangelists will get to do their thing and they'll get to have more people saved. And in the end, there will be more people in heaven case closed. Uh, And that's what we're kind of coming up against. I think with where we're coming from. That's, Okay, that's stirring up a lot of me just kind of thinking about like there's so much beauty, like part of me feels the need to defend my Baptist heritage and and that autonomy of the local church and right. the priesthood of all believers and the and the freedom that that places and trust that places in people to get to to have their own relationship with God and to get to right. know God and to interpret that and there's so much beauty in that and then we talk about. But if we allow that much freedom, the damage that can happen and which is going to rise, you know, which is going to it makes me think of a parallel to the gatekeeping process in the mental health field for counselors. And, you know, as a counseling professor, I take that really seriously about who I'm endorsing to go out into the mental health world. And there are people who, you know, in the broader field who might say the field will will weed them out. You know, once they get out in the field, people who are not good at it, you know, we don't need to worry about that as much, not at my university, but there's a, there's a thought about that, but then how much damage is done in the weeding out process. And Jill, that clicked something for you. (laughs) Talk. Well, I mean, in it, so in a mainline denomination, there's a weeding out process for leaders as well. And there's, you know, all these different steps of, you know, is the local church going to say, oh, I'm not sure that you're, you know, you meet these standards or things like that. 
Um, I mean, medical school, like if you're going to become an MD and do, you know, physical body health, um, which is also important as mental health is very important and not given as much importance as it should be, but um, there are standards that have to be met. And so the question of how much damage is done, if, if those standards aren't met, is that that does need to be asked because it is an important thing to consider. Yeah. I, I do have a, some judgment in my heart for the beloved children of God who go on the internet and get their ordination so that they can perform a wedding ceremony, like for a friend. Okay, fine. Lovely. But then who like walk around trying to call themselves a reverend, like mm, not okay with me. I no. am ordained in the universal life church, Jill, because I did uh, perform a wedding, but I never mention it. <laughs> I do not consider it a real ordination. It's well, literally just like a $75 fee. It's there's nothing to it. Right. And you're not stepping into a pulpit claiming no, to be. Of course not. That's insane. You know, right. people who have done that. Well, that yeah. is charlatanism at its <laughs> clearest. I think mm-hmm. billboard thoughts about any billboards. This episode is kind of a billboard in and of itself in the way we talk about, um, you know, pop culture and, and things that are going on in the world outside of ourselves. But. Paula, did you have any other billboards that you thought about in connection with this? Yeah, Dan, so our billboards are basically just anywhere we see pop culture or current events or anything connecting with what we're talking about. Great. And so, yeah, I agree, Jill, that pretty much the whole episode is a billboard, kind of like our Jesus in Sports episode last week. (laughs) Pretty much everything was about the celebrity of it all. And so we could spend a lot of time talking about all the different televangelists who've had scandal and how they've recovered from that. You know, Jim Baker went on to have a ministry. Ted Haggard went on to have another ministry. You know, they, they bounced back and continued. And so I think it's, it's, I would just love to hear more of their stories of the people who continue to follow them despite the scandal and how they, how they justified that and how they pulled it apart. Oh, that is a quant. That's a qualitative study right there. Paula. <laughs> All right, let's like, do it. Go find the people who are at Mark Driscoll's new church and just be mm-hmm. like, tell me why, you know, mm-hmm. is there a certain, there? is there a certain kind of person that he only has access to now? My understanding is that it's a much, much smaller congregation, uh, but his online presence, he'll just do whatever he can, of course, to, to have that be as shiny and polished as possible. Um, but like, yeah, who are the people? Yeah, that's a really good question. I yeah, I don't have any more billboards, Dad. I I I my natural way of dealing with this stuff is to always be thinking of what you guys call billboards. So I just did it the whole time and yeah. and compared it to capitalism and whatever else came to mind. You fit right in because we're always bleeding over into all of our categories. I was just gonna say my big one you already mentioned, Paula, was Beth Moore of just the the whole sort of phenomena around her and, and stories that I've read. And I know, um, particularly women or people who identify as female have been drawn to her leadership and the things that she's done. And one of the things I think you told me, Paula, is the ways in which she was really resistant to being that celebrity that, that she didn't want her Sunday school, you know, they kept trying to move her Sunday school class into other rooms. So more people could access her and really like cash in on that celebrity. And she was really resistant to that. And 
part of her exodus was like, mm, let's, let's all calm down here about the celebrity nature. Let's hold people accountable to what they need to be held accountable for. And I think that's um, in some ways, not knowing as much as I should about Beth Moore and, and all of her stuff, a hopeful U-turn for me as well, that people in power do look at their status, celebrity status with some caution and self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah, at least from what I've heard her talk about, I have always admired her resistance to the idea that bigger is better and that more is better. And you, and it's interesting that you talk about women, because as I thought about other people in this position, you know, Jen Hatmaker comes to mind, Glennon Doyle comes to mind, these women who I'm so, I admire them so much because they were willing to walk away from their cash cows. They were willing to say, yeah. This is going to cost me literally a lot of money. And I trust the message and I trust and I'm following what I should be following. My own mom followed Jen Hatmaker. She hmm. kept listening. Awesome. And now she texts me about like, I'm rethinking, you know, gay affirmation stuff. And we talk about it when she visits and she showed me Jen Hatmaker six years ago, you know, mm. on a ro little mini road trip we were taking and I was like, this is really funny. And uh, I was I was in awe of her communication skill. It was like an audio book of one of her books, but it was not for me. You know, it was like not aimed at me. It was mm -hmm. aimed at my mom. She loved it. It hit her right where she was. And she's taken the journey with her. Wow. Now she's one out of three, whatever, whatever the percentage is. It's some it's probably less than half of her people of her, you know, of her total consumers. Right. That that paid in some kind of money to the Jen Hatmaker empire, I'm sure she lost at least half of them or something like that. Somebody probably knows the answer to that. But my mom is an example of the, like she became, I think in some sense in the way Beth Moore will now become an even more heroic figure by doing the hard thing, not just yeah. by presenting oneself in the coolest way and most alluring, you know, consumeristic way. Yeah. So there can be these positives and the ways that God does use the celebrity. You know, right. we don't want to make it all seem like ignore the messenger all the time because sometimes the messenger is really important and can create connections like to your mom. We just right. can't ever let that be the only focus, the messenger. Something I would love to do on another episode is to, to look at the ways in which all of the different sides of the multifaceted dice of religious leadership and religious communities kind of use the phrase like, well, if they're yelling at us and telling us we're wrong, that means we're doing it right. And like the good parts of like, well, they're, you know, they're throwing bricks through your sign, then you know, you're doing something right. Or if they're protesting outside, you know, you're doing something right. And what the flip side of that is, which is like, oh, are we doing something right? Or should we maybe re-examine what we're doing because there are people outside, you know? So there's, that's a, I wonder if it, it doesn't seem like the Ravi Zacharias Ministries ever had that accountability while the ministry was in its heyday. And I wonder what would have happened. My inclination is that it would be like, oh, look, we're doing something right. They're, they're, they're picketing or they're throwing signs. So we must be doing something right. And that is also problematic. So especially um, toward the end when he was really, when he seemed to really be fostering a, uh, very much the same way if you read any of these accounts of how Trump talks about his detractors of like instantly everyone's a villain, 
they're attacking a good thing. Now everybody needs to get on board with staying loyal here and now flipping on them. You know, they, they did a lot of that, but that seemed to be really uh, laser focused on the way that he wanted to run his organization while he was, especially after 2016, was it the first big lawsuit? Um, whenever that happened, so. he, he kind of increasingly seemed to have turned to that. And so then creating that kind of culture within the company. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that self-examination piece is so important, Jill, that willingness, you know. Um, so as we wrap up, we have our final segment called Putting It in Park. Just kind of what are those final thoughts that we have? So Jill or Dan, either one of you want to put it in park first? I mean, for for me, I would say, you know, the most important thing is that openness know the willingness to ask questions it's question asking is always a good idea whether we're asking questions of ourselves or whether we're asking questions of the people we surround ourselves with or of our leaders religious civic political fill in your adjective to describe your leaders like asking questions is a good idea and a self-awareness as we ask questions and as we respond to the questions that we're asked is i think really important i have a less pastoral Putting it in park because I'll just I'll just say where my mind's at as a result of this conversation. I find myself really, really interested in this idea of when we are trying to go toward these organizations and churches that are closer to the Ravi Zachariah Ravi model, the the Baptist model, the non-denominational model, the charismatic leader model because that's where we're going to need to go. I'm just really interested in how do we do that? How do we affirm the value of those communities while also helping them to see the built-in dangers, the flip side of that coin? Um, and and to what extent do we push back on, you know, how much will, how much would the right solutions cost them those benefits and what kind of solutions are sort of like minimizing the cost to the good things of what they do while maximizing the protection for victims and potential victims. Um, that's where my mind's at. And I feel like this conversation was very uh, stimulated a lot of thinking along those lines for me. And it has me pretty excited while simultaneously overwhelmed, which could be the title of my autobiography. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great subtitle for any thinking person's life in general, yeah. <laughs> excited and overwhelmed at the same time. Yeah, my mind's a lot of different places as well. I think from the leader standpoint, I keep thinking of humility paired with confidence, just that that those are the same thing. That I mean, not necessarily the same thing, but they, they go together, like to have the humility to be willing to have those questions and to answer those questions and to be wrong and to step off that pedestal and that that is confident that that has that confidence with it and and Jill you've also got me really thinking about religion as a corporation and so I'm going to do a lot more thinking about that I've you know having worked in healthcare and having worked in education I've often tried to be an advocate that those things should not be treated like a business that those are two things that just they don't a business model does not work for those two entities and to to think about the idea of 
religious systems being run in that same way. We might, we might have to do a whole other podcast on that concept because that's really interesting to me. But, but I would just one. say to our listeners too, you know, that if you are, if you have been disappointed by a religious leader, that, that it's okay to grieve and that it's okay to, to kind of wrestle with what that means for you personally and to, and to just embrace the wrestling, that the wrestling is okay. That's so important. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on today. We're honored that you were willing to take some time to, to join us for a little bit. And if you just are, if you just came to us because of Dan today, we'd love for you to subscribe and listen to some other episodes yes, of yes. ours. And you can find us on the social media at Facebook and Instagram at so- Sacred Intersections Podcast, Twitter at Sacred Pod. Jill runs our amazing website, sacredintersectionspodcast.com. Please leave. We got another review, Jill. We're up to three reviews. It is a good day when we get a review. Paula, whomever put the uh, review up there, Paula loves you. She, you're her favorite. Um, you are. We appreciate that. And we'll Dan's stick- laughing. How many reviews do you have, Dan? Thousands. I, you know, I don't. No, no, no. It's not. It's not that many. But I don't. Um, I don't ask for them the way that most show. You know, it's very common. Like rate and review us. I just never did that. And so I often get people who, like, either really love it, really hate it, or have like a, a particular bone to pick. So the, a lot of four star reviews with like one real jab at me, <laughs> kind of thing, which is fine. That's great. You know. Yeah. Gotta let people say speak their minds. I, I'm looking back at the. The session and I feel like I talked about as much as the two of you combined and I feel bad about that but thank you for having me and, and allowing me to I'm a verbal processor and so that tends to end up happening we're just thrilled that you were here and I think I think we all got to speak our piece and I was doing a lot of internal pondering and wrestling myself so I'm just glad I got to listen and be a part of it we will link in the show notes uh, places so you can find Dan on uh, social media if you would like Dan, or certainly you have sure. permission podcast mm-hmm. if there are folks that want to get there. And um, roadies, we have said it before and we will say it again. We really like you and we really are glad that you're on this journey with us. We're honored to be on it with you. Yep. So safe travels through all your sacred intersections throughout the week.